You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the all-new Razor Guide Pack from Outdoor Edge has it all. Coming in at only 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Max Meiser Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. Housekeeping, if anybody who's listening to this podcast has not gone in and given a review, I would appreciate that. Um, that keeps me up on the Google list and obviously keeps more people listening. And the more people that listen to this are going to continue to enjoy the content that we're putting out. You know, I've been happy doing this podcast I was on the road today. I just got home. I got crazy kids running around, so I live a life just like everybody else. I've got responsibilities. This weekend, I'm going to be working, cutting some timber on a client property, and then I'm on the road again. And it's always a new day, always a new learning experience. And today, we're going to talk about soil. And uh, I know a lot about soils in some areas, and then, you know, I've got a lot to learn. So I'm going to try to share my perspective, um, but we got a better guest on than me. And uh, Al, how are you doing? Good, John. Good. How are you? Good. I want you to introduce yourself. I want to talk a little bit about your business and the seed that you sell and uh, get everyone to get just familiar with you. So why don't you introduce yourself? Absolutely. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, uh, Albert Temesco. I'm the uh, co-owner of Vitalize Seed. Um, Jared Van Hees, who you've had on recently, um, is the uh, other partner there. And Jared and I formed Vitalize Seed about... Uh, just about a year ago, actually, I think we're coming up uh, one month away from our one year anniversary. We basically set out, John, to, to make a seed that, uh, was not really available, um, anywhere else that we were seeing, you know, I actually was using similar mixes, um, for myself. And I started writing blogs going all the way back to the old QDMA forums. And I was just writing blogs and sharing kind of what I did and, and how I learned and how I made a lot of mistakes. And over the years, as I kind of fine tuned my process, uh, I had a lot of people starting to say, Hey, I'd like to, to buy that from you. You know, I, I'm not able to get 
X, Y, and Z type seed at my co-op, or they'll only make me buy a 50 pound bag. They're not going to make a mix for me. I only need a couple acres or what have you. And, um, there just seemed to be a need there. So, uh, I said, well, if we're going to do this, you know, let's set out to do something that's unique and let's really focus on the mixes that have worked for me, um, and help me to reduce the inputs on my farm. And, uh, that's what we did. We started with a, a spring mix and a fall mix and um, that's all we sell. We sell a, what we call our one-two system. So it's uh, it's a mix in the spring that feeds the soil to then get your uh, your fall mix is able to take advantage of that to reduce your need for inputs um, based on that. So we've been it's been a fun year. It's been really really busy. I think we're up to twenty one distributors throughout the uh, the country and uh, and growing. So it's been a lot of fun. And the best part is getting to meet people and talk with people and. Um, you know, share different experiences and come up with a plan that's going to work for their, their piece of, uh, their piece of heaven. Yeah. And I appreciate that because what I've done over the years and I've kind of created my own blends, right? I started my journey. We're going on year eight, uh, no fertilizer applied. Uh, and I do use natural amendments. I want to be clear about that, but no synthetic fertilizers applied on my landscape. And when I say natural, that could be rock dust, you know, salts, um, a lot of different variations of, of natural remedies to enhance my soil. And one thing I want to say, and just for everyone's familiarity, I hear a lot of this plants fix dirt. And let me tell you something, plants do help the process and they're integral in the process. But soil is the habitat for a lot of the insect and animal life that we focus on on this podcast. And that's why focusing on soils is really important. If you go back to one of my first podcasts, I talked about the importance of soil. And here's my standard. If I'm looking at a property, I start with the soil. And why is that? Because it's less amendments. It's a less focus. And as a result of quality soil, it gives me quality plants. And nutrient-rich plants are going to attract deer. And that's going to be a discussion that we have in this podcast today. And that's that's an easy connection that you can make to the soil. So these degraded, weathered soils, you know, those type of you know types of areas, those are not my first choice in selection. And so when I'm looking at the landscape, that's a huge consideration of a land pur- purchase for me because I'm not trying to raise the bar. The bar's there. Maybe I'm raising a little bit higher. So I'm going from average maybe to good to excellent. I'd rather be at that excellent point as soon as possible. So we can talk a little bit about that. The other thing I want to identify is there's been a whole bunch of podcasts that I've listened to over the years about, well, everything's in the soil and you don't need to add anything. That's completely false. And here's why our eco regions and the weather and everything that's impacted those soils have degraded our soils over time. Humans have impacted the soils probably more than anybody at this point. The, the factors of there are most of the nutrients in your soils, but it levels so deep in the soil profile that the top six, eight inches of soil that you're typically utilizing don't have all the micros or macronutrients. And there's association, not to sound too complicated here, we're talking about deer hunting and you know food plots, but there's association with micronutrients and flavor or flavonoids. Those are an attractivity component that pull deer in. The reason why I kill big bucks, one of the reasons I have very attractive soils and it relates to the food and it relates to the interest. And that's how you create a very active, effective property. It's all connected. The ecology, it's all part of it. So I think this is a good topic. 
I went on a rant. I'm sorry, Al. But it's it's how I think about soils. And most of my clients, we don't get there in the initial visits, but I have follow-up clients. We're at like level 400, and we're starting to look at their soil samples, and we're starting to diagnose their deficiencies in the landscape. Most properties that I go on, every soil sample, you're boring deficient. What does that do? Do we understand that? It's an anion. How does it? How does that impact you know, your abilities, uh, your plant's ability to produce sugars and function properly, work with the soil. So we're thinking about to the micronutrient level as much as we are the macronutrients. And the macros are kind of the nitrogens, the phosphorus. And I have another rule. I'll never add nitrogen on my soil ever, never, ever. And so these are things that we want to think about because there's a, a lot of strategies uh, surrounding this topic, but that that's mine. L. Why don't you talk a little bit? Let's talk about, you know, what you've learned over the years and some of the things, and we're not maybe going to get into specific seed blends this for this go around, but talk about how you looked at the soil and things that you've considered, you know, seed end ratios, base saturation, you know, taking a soil sample, just things that you think about. Well, I mean, first off, you hit on so much good information there and I agree with you. And I think one of the things that often we've done as an industry um and i'm sure you know i say we because i probably wrote an insert somewhere in a form at one one time or another where i'm probably contradicting myself now but where where we felt like one way is the only way or um you know like you say you just uh, get get diverse and this is gonna this is gonna fix everything or or whatnot and you know one of the biggest things is you have to start like you said is you know with a soil sample you know, you have to see, because let's face it, a lot of guys, you know, you buy a piece of property, you buy a farm, you buy an old logging deck, you know, whatever it might be. And that might be the only spot you have and in what you can afford. And, and that's what you want to grow this, this, you know, television quality food plot on. And it's like, okay, you know, um, that's our starting point here. We got to kind of know where are we starting? Let's pull a soil sample. Let's see, because it probably is, John, like you mentioned, it's probably really degraded, you know? And of course we all want to get to a point where we're adding zero, zero amendments, you know, that that's who I haven't added anything on my soils in in years and it's been great, you know? Um, However, (laughs) however, um, I think it's important to still soil test and, and it's okay to say, you know what, this first year, the second year, I am going to have to add a little bit of fertility, you know, and maybe that's in an organic form, you know, maybe that's in a foliar spray just to give those plants a boost. Maybe it is a foliar boron because of this, that, and the next thing after soil testing and you realize, you know, or tissue testing or whatever, you, how in-depth you want to get, right? But that is something that I think is often um, overlooked is just that simple step of saying, okay, before I follow X, Y, and Z advice, let's get a soil sample and let's look at it and then let's, you know, see what do we have? What type of soil do I have based on the CEC number, not based on how I've categorized it based on a shovel full, because I can't tell you, John, how many times somebody will tell me, Oh, I got a really heavy soil and they'll send me their soil test. And I'm like, well, then either the soil test is inaccurate or you really don't have a heavy soil. You have something else going on, be it compaction or something like that. Right. Because your CEC is like seven, you know, <laughs> like you don't really have a heavy soil here. Um, so that really helps us to, to find out a lot. The other thing is when you're talking about plant mixes and, and diverse mixes and carbon to nitrogen ratios and, and wanting to cycle these different plant species, 
to help optimize all of the things that you talked about there, right? I mean, optimizing that underground network in biology so that you are getting good uptake of nutrients in forms that can be converted easily or less stressful at least to amino acids um, or plant proteins, right? At, at less stress to the plant. Well, in order to do these things, you have to create this environment where nutrients are cycling optimally. And some of the things out there right now, you know, you'll see, oh gosh, I don't even know, but you'll see people talking in the fall, you know, 300 pounds, 400 pounds. I think I saw somebody last year, 500 pounds of rye grain they put down, you know, and it's like, that's, that's a, a lot of carbon, right? That's, that's a high carbon to nitrogen plant. And when you're putting that much down on an acre, if you don't have legumes in your mix, be it in the fall and in the spring, to help pump nitrogen to feed those microbes, you're going to have what's called nutrient tie-up. You know, and again, I, I, I'm sure I made that mistake at some point in my, in my journey here over the last, you know, 10, 15 years. Um, and that's something that I think really, um, I think you used the word when you were, you were explaining some of your thoughts is I think you used the word uh, synergistic. And I think that's how we have to look at soils and then plants. You know, the plants are just, just a vehicle for energy transfer from the soils. And, and it's all the synergistic relationships. And we have to understand within those, there's this balance and in all of, you know, a legume crop isn't really a good thing for our soils. And, and there's reasons for that, right? Let's just pretend, like you said, I'm not going to put nitrogen on, our, on my soil. Well, if I'm just planting legume after legume after legume after legume, I'm fixing a ton of nitrogen. The problem with that is these microbes need a balance of nitrogen and carbon. That's that whole idea behind carbon to nitrogen ratios, right? And, um, what you end up having is that these microbes are saying, man, I have all this nitrogen. Where's my carbon source at? And guess what? If they don't have it, you can literally mine your own organic matter out of your soil. You know, and that's been, I've seen that occur. People are like scratching their head. Why are my organic matter levels going down? Why does it seem like it's harder and harder to harder to grow a crop? And then you figure out like, oh, you you really weren't cycling nutrients from, from one crop to another. So now it was my turn to rant. I apologize. But I mean, those are just some of the high level things that I think people can can easily overlook you know, before they really kind of understand how things are all interconnected. Oh, I love it. And you actually put the pieces together, starting to make sense in my head, the way you're describing it. So let's back up. Number one, where does Al get his soil samples, you know, across of his landscape? I mean, are you taking soil samples in the woods? How are you doing them? And then I want to know what labs that you're using. I want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I'm pretty specific about soil samples because there, there's just so much, and, and I can't take credit for this. I've learned from really good agronomists. I have a very good friend of mine. He consults um, for row crop farming on about 20,000 acres in uh, South Georgia. Um, Caleb is a, just a fantastic guy and resource, and he's really taught me a lot about how specific we should be about soil samples. So I have a soil probe I use, number one. Um, I mark the probe at six inches depth. I just mark it with electrical tape, but you could mark it with anything. <clears throat> and every time I stick that probe in the ground, I'm taking six inches out. Uh, if I do an acre field, if it's the first time ever planting, John, I'll do kind of a random grid sample throughout that acre. As I found fine-tuned my processes and in, in the fields on my particular farm, I am actually starting to get to the point where uh, I'm going to be driving T-posts into the ground or using GPS. I don't get very good service in my area. So for me, I'm going to be using T-posts or just PVC pipe. 
And then I will take the same soil samples within, you know, the radius of the, I don't know, a couple foot radius of that pipe every year. So maybe in a, in a one acre field, you have three of those going down the center of the field. Um, obviously, if there's anything that stands out on that field, maybe there's a wet corner or something, you want to isolate those because they're likely going to be different soil type or whatnot. Um, so that's how I do it. Uh, there's a lot of ways to do it, but I try to eliminate variables, especially for guys who are adding amendments. Um, you know, I, I should say I do add lime. Um, I have added lime. I have several fields haven't seen it in over six years, but um, I have had added lime on a couple. Um, this year is actually going to be a year I put a little bit more lime down. Um, so I want to see, you know, I, I want to see is, is, you know, I want to try to narrow down the variables and, and not just be jumping around a, a one, two, three acre field, um, you know, taking things. So if it's, if it's more than an acre, um, I tend to break the field up into like one acre sections and then try to mark those sections within that. So I'm taking out of the same general areas of each section. So hopefully that made sense as far as how I go about sampling. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, can I add a little bit? Cause I want to just, please. Take, so what please. I, I typically do with my clients and I had a phone call tonight and this is what I told one of my clients to do is I want to create an X across the field. And let's say it's a one acre field and I mark in each corner really kind of where your viewpoint is. And off that corner point, I walk 40 paces, take a sample, 40 paces, take a sample, 40 paces, take a sample. Um, it's really cross section. So you'll take, end up, uh, end up taking, at that 40 paces, roughly there about three to four samples across that X, maybe a little bit more, a little bit less. So we want about 10 to 12 basically soil probes to your example, mix it up in a clean space and then, you know, make sure it dries a little bit. And then I put it in my bag and I send it off to my lab. The other thing I do is if I don't have that X set up, it's an odd shaped field, some distance away from my exclusion cages. And I usually will have a marker where exclusion cage, not in the exclusion cage, but 10 feet away. Uh, from that particular point, I usually keep my exclusion cages in the same point. I'll take a sample. And in, a, in an acre field, I'll have four exclusion cages, minimal, minimal. Sometimes it'll be eight, depending on the size of the food plot. But usually, generally, it's it's about four per acre. Now, that's a little bit more than people you know, think through. But I'm going to measure biomass, and I want to see the variability because the way I do seeding is I'm just like an artist. I just like throw seed on the ground like Johnny Appleseed. And my carbon uh, ratios are way too high. And that's why I've learned over the past two years to always have a legume at a smaller quantity uh, standardizing. So I don't really try to till the ground. I've got this thing called a roller crimper and I built like an archaic one. But now I have a pretty robust industrial one that I built maybe, I don't know, six years ago now. And I just practice cycling. So it's weed mat. So I create a weed mat. And before that, I'm throwing seed down. And I'm just creating the environment that you would normally, you know, create in kind of this, you know, seed dispersion, any type of plant life. And and I just kind of replicate that across the landscape. And I don't now, <laughs> you know, if there's a spot and there's a plant that uh, is no longer there, it degraded, I throw a little seed on the ground and I'll go in with herbicide and I'll spot treat. I don't spray an entire field. I will spot spray areas. That's why I want my food plots not to be large. And uh, I don't have the time to manage a field in that setting. And sometimes, you know, that random lamb's quarter that's going off, it's awesome. We'll take it. Deer consume it. It's inedible, but it may not be what I want to grow there, but it will grow there. And naturally, it's there for a particular reason. There's a certain type of uh, microbiology that's happening and nutrient availability that, that creates these plants in the landscape. 
the big thing I'm trying to eradicate is grasses. And that's generally speaking why, you know, I do herbicide some of the areas. So that's just another consideration. So I want to bounce forward. I want to know what labs you use and why. I know you use a particular lab, so I want to hear, hear why. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of really good labs um, out there. Um, you know, we at Vitalize Seed had partnered with Ward Laboratories. I had been using them for a few years. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I liked about Ward is the consistency. Um, so I, I had actually done a study. Uh, I think I did a YouTube video on it. Uh, at one time, I had a personal YouTube. I think I had like three people following me. But I wanted <laughs> to kind of document this. And uh, I had done, I had taken a soil probe in my garden. And I had taken like three probe depths exactly next to each other. And then I sent them off to different labs. Um, and I did it actually like nine times. And then I sent it all off to different labs to see how much variability there would be. And then uh, I sent some to the same labs so like Ward. I sent for both biological testing and also standard soil testing. And then I wanted to compare, well, how did their biological testing? Cause there's still some metrics that are the same, right? Um, anyhow, Ward's data was really, really close on all fronts. So I really like that because I would often, I, I use some of the, just the generic, you know, buy off the shelf tractor supply soil tests and, you know, you, you send it in a baggie and um, there's nothing wrong with that. I just wasn't really confident in after years of doing it. I have a whole folder here, in my desk and like, I just felt like, man, either I'm not, controlling the variables here very well or something at the lab is, is seems highly variable because I'm getting results kind of all over the place. And uh, again, it very well could be me, but when I did it with Ward, I was so happy with the consistency. Um, so that was number one. Uh, the other reason is uh, I like how they kind of, what they include um, for just a standard, you know, $22 test, you know, they include your, your obviously your pH um, they include your organic matter they give you a nitrate reading, which I think that's kind of nice, and they give it to you in both parts per million, but they also give you an easy – it's already converted for you um, in uh, pounds. So that's uh, assuming a zero to six-inch step. So I always think that's kind of a cool um, thing. They give you, your obviously, your phosphorus and then your micros and macros, and then they give you your um, CEC as well as your base saturation percentages. So I think there's a good value there. Um, you know, you always get the person who goes, oh, I can take it to my county extension office for, for free or for $3. And it's like, but what do they give you, right? You know, and, and some, I'm sure some are fantastic, but uh, I've also seen some that are pretty limited. So I've liked that about Ward. Um, and then lastly, they just are good people. I mean, everybody I've worked with there, and again, I'm, I, I've worked with other labs too that are fantastic, but um, – man, John, they've got some good people there. And I mean, they've, they've have soil scientists and these PhDs that'll take my call and, and answer my emails. And I'm like, well, what about this? And what about this? And what are your thoughts? You know, and, and I'll share PowerPoints with them that somebody shared with me. And I, I'm curious about their thought on it. Cause it's contradictory, contradictory to something else that I've read or, or whatnot, you know, and, and you know, how anything that's out there, there's contradicting information. And, um, you know, to be able to go to a PhD soil scientist and, and exchange thoughts and comments and things, and they really work and really care about about their customers. And uh, yeah, that's what led me to to want to partner with them. And they were nice enough to go, heck yeah, let's let's work together. And um, I've just been very very happy with their their seeding testing results, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I use a slightly different company, and my clients, you know, they'll get tied into that. But 
you know, I think using a reputable lab is really important. Um, it's nice because when you're familiar with the testing protocol of that lab and you know it's very consistent, and I think my test around $30, and you're looking at those bits of data and they do have some comparables, the good part with my clients, what I do is, you know, based on their soil type, I have recommendations of, you know, all the amendments. So I have minimums, right, maximum applications for each element, right? So they can actually do the math. And then I take their parts per million, you know, give them a, a pounds per acre, right, that type of equation. And I'll walk that through with my client if they want it. And, and that's not really kind of a hard math equation going from parts per million. It's you really times two to get the acreage. But what you're trying to figure out is, you know, what's the ideal scenario? Like, Lime, for example, right? There's certain soil types that are able to hold on to lime a little bit better than others. So you have to put it in kind of incremental moments. Uh, boron, as an example, you were talking about foliar sprays, right? Spraying it on the plant. When do you spray it? Like time of day? Uh, what volume? There's a lot to consider in the, those, you know, that kind of equation. We just did this podcast on fruit trees, and I was talking about copper spraying, and, you know, copper sulfates, and when you want to apply them. I guess I talked about that a little bit, but, you know, there's a lot that goes into this full spectrum thinking about soils and plant life. And really there's measurement techniques. You can take plant tissue samples and bring it to the lab. They're kind of expensive and you can't, they got to be kind of timely done, or you can do simple uh, other tests. And we can talk a little bit more about that, but you hit on a couple little points that I think, you know, the C to N ratio, carbon to nitrogen ratio, what does that mean to you? And let's talk about specific plants and I don't want to talk about building our seed blends today, but, you know, we don't want too carbonaceous. We don't want too nitrogen-based. We want somewhere in the middle. What, what does that kind of look like at 24 to 1, 31 ratio? You know, what is that kind of like? Our bodies, human bodies are about 30 to 1, just as a reference point. And, you know, there's a preference from this kind of bacterium standpoint. How do we want to look at that, Al? And yes. with seed blends? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. And I think it all depends on, you know, you hate to say it all depends, but it kind of depends on, the, you know, the grower and what does that grower plan to do? Is he no-tilling? Is he is he no-till drilling? Um, is he using any fertilizer, um, specifically synthetic or not? Is he going to follow a, a system, you know? Um, obviously, we have ours formulated to have a lower carbon and nitrogen uh, base in the springtime to then be followed by a much higher carbon and nitrogen mix in the fall, um, but let's just say somebody's like, well, you know, I want to, I want to make my own or whatnot. You know, the things that I would be considering is what's going to follow that crop. Cause it's not as necessarily as important about this crop's carbon and nitrogen ratio as it is, as the, the, the crop that's going to follow. Right. Um, for example, a, a good example that might be a good visual for somebody is plant corn, really high carbon to nitrogen ratio. Right. It's not, really that critical about corn's carbon to nitrogen ratio in the season in which corn is growing. What where the carbon to nitrogen ratio really plays into this is what's going to happen after that corn, right? Because yeah. if we don't have a legume following it and we're going to do corn on corn, well then something else has to happen, right? We have to add nitrogen to that cycle or we have to add air or maybe both. So are we going to be using tillage 
to cut the corn stalks, whether maybe it's even vertical tillage because we don't want to, um, you know, we don't want to turn the dirt over as much. We want to reduce uh, reduce tillage. So maybe it's a vertical tillage machine or something in an agricultural setting. And even some food plotters are getting pretty pretty creative with how they're doing that stuff. I think it's pretty cool. Um, so when you're thinking carbon and nitrogen ratios, I, I tell people often, you know, don't think necessarily about the, the current mix that you all have or, or the current plant is, is a singular thought process. You need to think about what's following. And even so, like, and then what's following that, right? Because that's really when you're going to optimize being able to break down those higher carbon or higher lignin filled, filled uh, plants. Now, John, what I will say is to help visualize what the hell a carbon nitrogen ratio, you know, what does that mean? I think this is the easiest way I could say it for people is if you've ever had a clover monoculture, which I would imagine most people have seen it, they've envisioned it, et cetera. Um, and you say, you know what? It's, it's lifed out. It's five years, 10 years old. I'm going to spray it with herbicide. If you came back two weeks later and you looked at that field, you would see very little clover left. It would just be almost like a bare dirt field. And you kind of scratch your head and go, well, why? Did it blow away? Well, no. It's because clover is a legume and it's a really low carbon to nitrogen ratio. When you sprayed that crop and you gave the microbes a couple of weeks, they consumed that clover, that lower carbon nitrogen species, rapidly. Now, if you use the same example, and let's use you know rye grain, Let's say we plant it in the fall, we come back and it's, a, we planted 150 pounds to the acre. We come back the next spring and it's five and a half foot tall and we sprayed that with Roundup. And you came back in two weeks. I can promise you, your mind is not giving you the same vision of what that clover field would look like. You're seeing a mat of dead rye. And if you came back another two weeks later, you're probably still seeing a, dead, a mat of dead rye. Well, why is that? right? Because rye is such a high carbon to nitrogen ratio plant, specifically in a monoculture without a highly diverse microbial system functioning underneath its roots, that you're just going to have that sitting. It's going to take forever to break down without nitrogen in the system. So hopefully that helps to paint kind of a picture of what do they mean by carbon to nitrogen? Yeah, I think that does paint the picture. And another simple example is wood chips, right? They have a very high carbon nitrogen ratio, right? That's an example. Wood chips is a good example. It's a long time from them to break down. And I put wood chips on my deer trails, everybody. That's a great strategy for minimizing vegetation on your deer trails. Has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but it's a good strategy. Part two of this is thinking about, I think you brought an example up, I think very importantly, is you have higher nitrogen-based plantings in the spring versus in the fall. And can you explain, I know the cycling here that we talked about, but what is the foundation behind that principle? Yeah, so the biggest piece is the, is the nutrient cycling. So, in the you know, we recommend doing uh, spring, fall, spring, fall, um, et cetera. So when you're doing that and you've had this, so let's start with the fall. You plant this fall crop, it grows great. You have rye, you have triticale, you have all these other um, grains and brassicas, et cetera. It lifes out and uh, the next spring it's growing, you know, like a son of a gun. And uh, you're getting ready to say, okay, it's time to plant my spring mix. So you're going to terminate, be it roller crimper, be it flail mower, be it bush hog, be it spray, whatever suits that grower's needs. Um, and you're going to have this mat of carbon, right? 
Well, we want to optimize this nutrient cycle and get another crop going, right? Because when plants are, are photosynthesizing, that's when we're really helping to feed your, your microbial system, both fungal as well as um, bacterial. So we're going to plant our lower carbon and nitrogen, heavy, in the, heavy on the legumes, mix right into that heavier thatch cover. And what that's going to do is it's going to help to break down that thatch by producing nitrogen, right? Now, there are some legumes in the um, what we call carbon load, but our fall mix. And that's why you don't just plant a monoculture of legumes because here's the kicker. Nitrogen goes through, anybody listening can look up the nitrogen cycle. Nitrogen is going to get to nitrate at some point, right? Um, and if there's not a root there that wants to absorb that nitrate, nitrate's a leachable nutrient. Maybe a little bit more in some soil types than others. Nonetheless, it's a leachable nutrient. And our plants have worked their tails off to fix this nitrogen, right? And I'm just using nitrogen as an example, but there's other nutrients that fit this as well. So that's why it's good to have these legumes. They're going to be helping to produce nitrogen and <clears throat> add nitrogen to the system. They have nitrogen on their roots and they can help to break down that thatch. But then you're also going to have plants in there that, oh, this nitrogen was created last fall and it's trying to leach out of the system. I'm going to grab that too. For example, a sorghum. And it's going to be able to grow and take that nitrogen into its stalk so that when you terminate that spring growth in the fall, you still keep your soil covered and now have these other plants that are producing and growing and allowing that biology to now break down that soil, soil stalk. And you're literally just recycling nutrients, right? It's kind of a good way to think of it. Um, so that's kind of the idea behind how that works. Um, of course, the one caveat is always the, you know, deer, deer browse is, is one thing a lot of people don't like to talk about. And a lot of, you know, a lot of video or pictures or, or tests that are done, um, and myself included, you know, a lot of people are blessed to have really large fields. So when you're, you're working on smaller fields, uh, if everything's walking off, um, you know, we, we might have to adjust a little bit, you know, and, and that's a whole nother conversation for another day. But uh, I just like to, to make mention of that. Yeah, and I'm going to I'm going to defunct something that I hear quite often and I don't mean to be controversial but I'm going to be for a second. You know, there's there's always talk about grazing pressure and we're talking in this case we're talking about deer. And that's typically minimal. They're obviously selective what with what they do consume, right? They're not eating sedges or rushes, right? They're eating specific plants at certain times of the year. And you have to think about that a part of this philosophy of what plants are being consumed and what plants may not be consumed. And it's okay putting non-consumables in a food plot, right? It creates that substrate or that consistency. And that, that helps that nitrogen or excuse me, nutrient cycling that, that Al was just talking about. The other piece of it is introducing cattle. Um, I've worked with some clients recently where they have introduction to cattle and they listen to all these naturalists and they're like, okay, well, you know, you can see the volume of grazing. There's, there's all formulas for this of what's ideal. I find cattle grazing to be like detrimental, <laughs> you know, and, and our short growing seasons here in the Northeast. And it's, it's good in theory. It's tough in practice. And there's a lot of management that has to go into that. So I typically paddock out cattle and then I have focused, you know, deer food sources. And so I like to segregate those because I think the grazing pressure, even if, you know, cattle are eating high, you know, grass content, they're all also eating a lot of forbs on that landscape. So these food plots can be degraded pretty quickly by just giant consumable, you know, animals. So that's, that's one consideration. I'm going to take you down a path now, 
Ale. And we're getting into this a little bit deeper. And I think this is kind of deep, right? This is soil health, right? We're trying to get some takeaways out of this. And I'm, I'm a really simple person when it comes to look at soil, right? I smell it. I look at it. I visually see it. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, looking at the tools and tool sets. I know you've done some bricks uh, using a refractometer, like looking at kind of plant and soil health in a very simplistic way. We talked about taking you know, plant uh, tissue analysis. Um, not everyone has the ability to do that. So there's other tools that you can use. I use a tool and I could use this with a screwdriver. I can stick a screwdriver in the ground and see how compacted my soil is. Um, I can use a more sophisticated tool. Um, I could use a rod. And simply put is when we have very compacted soils, it takes a lot of energy for our roots to get down into the soil deep. Um, and usually those are deoxygenated soils. Um, there isn't a lot of, I guess, nutrient availability. They're degraded in most cases when you have really compacted soils. We'll talk about why in a second. But we're trying to get nutrients out of the ground. The other thing is we talked earlier about this roller crimper thing that I have. We talked about tillage or you know single plow tillage or limited tillage, vertical tillage, depending on your technique. Um, but we're trying not to disturb the soil in any capacity. So the Johnny Appleseed example of John running around throwing seed all over the place and I guess I'm not putting it down at like 400 pounds an acre, um, or I'm not recommending that much more than you typically drill. It's usually 30% more on average, 10 to 30% more. And I'm, I'm just running around the landscape doing this. Where I'm going with this is we don't want to degrade our soils, and we want to make sure that as we work the soil, and I'm not saying you can't disc the soil. Um, I'm not saying you can't disc the you know, top couple layers, and certainly if you have corn as an example and you're trying to reset or you're integrating, you know, some type of, I guess I would say limited soluble, you know, nutrients or natural amendments, yes, you might have to till them in the soil so they don't escape. But deep tillage is really not the goal unless you have, you know, compacted soils and you're trying to aerate them. So, you know, you're kind of looking at this example here and thinking to yourself, okay, what are my next steps to assessing the landscape Alan, I'm, I'm going to kind of push you down this road of how do you look at the soil? You smell it? Do you feel it? You know, because I'm, I'm kind of a like, touch-feel kind of guy, right? I like running a chainsaw, and I like, you know, two-stroke in my face. So when I'm looking at the soil, I want to have an opinion on it, and I want to be able to simply evaluate it. And maybe we're just looking at organic material, which is, again, our source of food, right? There's where the carbon exists. That's uh, the food for our plants. What does it look like? What does it smell like? So I want to get your take on that. Well, John, this again, just a, a great question. And I mean, um, my, I would say I've probably changed over the years, you know, and I think that's okay. Right. I mean, with all of these things, you know, your processes and, and how you look at things and how you think about things. Um, I think one of the best things about this life is, is how information's at our fingertips and we can be fluid in our, in our ability to learn and think and, and do things differently. So currently, um, what, you know, what I do is, um, I, I do look at it. I, I look at it very, very closely. Um, you know, maybe that's just with a spade, you know, taking a, taking a spade to the soil. And um, I, I look at how deep are the, are the roots going, um, you know, and, and uh, what, what, you know, are there a lot of wormholes through the soil? I mean, just simple things like that. Does the soil look like it's, it's well aggregated or, or well clumped up so that if you pour water on it, it's not like a dust, like it's not going to wash away. But if you poured water on that soil after you took a spadeful, does it look almost like a sponge? Does it look porous? Does it look like the water could just kind of trickle its way through, you know, to those different root pores? Um, so, so, I mean, that that is indicative of a, of a relatively healthy soil. Um, you know, if you want to go a step further, 
you know, before you and I started talking, we talked about Rizashis. Uh, I, I always tell people, you know, there's so many brilliant people. If, if people want to really learn about Rizashis, uh, Dr. Christine Jones has free webinars on YouTube. Um, she has tons of literature out there you can read. She's super brilliant. Um, but essentially, is soil adhering to the roots? You know, are you able to see any type without a microscope, right? You know, can you see any fungal hypae, you know, coming out of the roots or touching the roots? Can you see it? You know, you're probably not going to be able to see a, a ton microscopic aspect, but, you know, sometimes you might catch some with your uh, naked eye, you know, um, taking a Campbell soup can. You know, this was one of my favorite ex- experiments I did a couple years ago. So I planted a cover crop. And then I had taken a, a tiller and I had tilled the spot up um, and just left it fallow. And then come uh, spring, I took a shovel full of dirt and I put it in a cup, in a measuring cup. And I took that, uh, that was out of the tilled path. And I took a shovel full of where the cover crop was. I put it in the measuring, both similar measuring cups are actually identical next to each other. And I set a timer and I poured water on both of them at the same time. John, the one with the cover crop, it took like a minute for water to get through. The one without, the water was through before I could even look up. Like as I was hitting the timer, it was like already through the soil. Mm-hmm. It was just, re- and, and of course it was brown, it was murky, it was it was just, um, it was just really interesting. Well, maybe you don't want to have to do that, but you can take a Campbell soup can and Pounded it in, and there is, I think there is a standard to, to follow, but I don't know, an inch, maybe half inch. You pound it into the, the dirt and, and, you know, the soil, and you, you pour water in there, and you set a top stopwatch or set it on your phone, and, you know, how long does it take for that, that water to infiltrate your soil? You know, does it go down right away? Does it, does it kind of slowly infiltrate the soil? Um, you know, and, and again, that's a good sign of water infiltration. You know, are you, are you able to get it? So if you get a hard rain, what is that going to do? Is it just going to run off or is it infiltrating, right? And that, that's what we want to do. You know, um, again, we want to, we want to capitalize on, uh, especially if you're in a more uh, arid area, you know, you want to capitalize on the little rainfall you get and, and soils can help you do that. So um, I probably missed something. Oh, I know the last one I was going to say, John, is, uh, you know, we started talking earlier a little bit about having multiple different crop species. And you had mentioned, you know, maybe some species that aren't highly browsable or highly preferred is okay. You know, one of the things I do is when I terminate, you know, we have sorghum in our spring mix. Um, and I'll give a, a guy a shout out. He's a, a farmer and actually a customer of ours, but his name's Dan Taylor, just a super guy out of Michigan. Um, I've learned a lot from him, you know, just from bouncing ideas off of him from a row, as a row crop farmer and just a really, really nice guy. You know, and uh, I was showing him sorghum stalks. I don't know, it was three weeks, four weeks after, uh, you know, drilling through them. And they were already breaking down. And, you know, sorghum, although not corn, it's, it's similar, right, yeah. from carbon yeah. and nitrogen ratio yeah. perspective. And he was like, dang, that's impressive. You know, and that's something that I, I uh, again, I probably didn't do that three years ago, four years ago. Uh, but I'm starting to get more and more. Um, I'm finding myself kind of not only looking at the things we discussed, but also What's thatch breakdown look like and, and, and things like that? So those are all things we can look at without having to send it to a lab. I mean, those are just nice um, kind of metrics that we can use, I guess, to kind of judge our success. I think one thing is you brought up a couple of good points that I want people to think about because I want this to be pretty simple. You, you reach down and you pull out a plant and you, we talked about the rhizosheath 
And we talked a little bit about what that looks like. Um, picture like a Rastafarian hairstyle. Okay, that's the simplest way to look at it. And that's it's a great this, point. right? There's a good example. That's what it looks yeah. like. Um, versus you pull that plant out and just all that soil just, just falls off the root. And it's well connected. There's all this fungal material dominating within that sphere, you know, keeping that, you know, quite together. And there's tests, there's a slack test. You and I were talking about that before. And, and other things you can do is you can actually just take, you know, get, grab a mason jar, dig your soil up and uh, throw it, you know, throw it in the, in, in the water, you know, dissolve it in water and, and just see the humic layer. And you can look at your, your sand, you know, sand silts, clay percentages across that and kind of get a general idea. You can be very simple about having to send things to a lab. And I look at those things as kind of just basic tools. We talked about measuring penetration, right? There's uh, tools that you can use to do that. I use an EC meter. Um, this is like level 400 stuff. So there's all sorts of measurements that you can take that you don't have to send it to a lab. The BRICS test that we're talking about earlier, you know, the nutrient density of those plants, right? That's really important, right? Because that provides health to our animals. And again, earlier, I was talking about attractivity looking at the coloration and so go to like an area that maybe may not be worked and dig up dig a hole and then compare the coloration of the plants measure the amount of earthworms in a foot by foot section this is the hugest thing this is why i'm successful here this is why you know plants always don't fix dirts you know that's the the plants fix dirt that just drives me nuts i hate hearing that because that is such a small piece of the equation so do invertebrates and they're putting on an acre, if you've got a roughly, this is going to be an approximation, 18 to 25 earthworms per one foot by one foot section, kind of think of it as a cube, apply that all across your landscape. The production is right around 40 tons of manure. You can't apply 40 tons of manure from a manure spreader on your landscape. That's impractical. So we want the invertebrates to work for us. And that's the benefit of having, you know, a multitude of these, these plants, creating these synergies, creating these, these biomes of interest to these invertebrates. And then we need to think about the insects on top. Again, it's just breaking down that thatch layer, like Al was talking about earlier. I'm, I'm trying to think what else uh, crumbly Crumble soil versus block soil that kind of just shows it's more aggregated. Think about like a chocolate cake. That's an example. I'm trying to think what else. Lots of insects, color. Um, look at the plant itself. You know, its coloration. That's an indicator of health. Is it yellow? Right? Simple, simple things we can look at. And you can diagnose nutrient deficiencies or chemical deficiencies as a result of your soil sample. But most people are only obliged to dealing with MPK. They're not focused on the micros. That's the difference. And I'm not putting, like, there's 17 particular nutrients that people focus on. I'm focused on 60. Okay, I'm focused on 90. And there's, um, I think I heard a podcast one time was somebody saying, you know, deer are traveling for miles to get to this food plot. Oh, they do. And that immigration number on some of these properties that I work on is that high. The other thing is where you're getting your seed, the size of the seed is a big deal. Like, you know, how ancestral seeds or seeds you know, grown where they have, you know, very plump and oily, you know, those are preferential and we're probably getting degraded seed or lower quality seed. And it's important to figure out where your seed source is. I struggle with that because either I grow my own seed or I buy it from a reputable source. You know, those are complications in this equation. I'm just trying to think, oh, what else I got? You know, what else, what other testing that I do? 
I'm on the landscape, but there's a lot into well, this, I think, right? I think that's, I mean, you've hit on some really good ones. I share a little uh, anecdotal story story with you. So, you know, a lot of people who know me and I've probably told you is, you know, I, I not only love food plot and stuff is I always have a huge garden, you know, and it, it uh, my previous home, I had grown about 200 plus tomato plants a year, about 135 pepper plants. And, um, and then of course, you know, your, your lettuce and squash and all that stuff, but peppers and, and tomatoes are kind of my, my core that I really enjoyed growing. And I started using, um, really diverse cover crops in between my rows. People thought I was nuts, right? Cause I'd have all these tomato plants and then I'd literally go out there with a push mower and I would just mow down my walking paths. But down the one path, I never did mow it. I planted sunflowers and I promise this story is going somewhere, but it reminded me when you said about the, the bugs and creating this, this environment, right? And aphids were always pretty bad. Anybody who's growing tomato plants would say, oh man, aphids are a pain in the rear end, you know, and, and whatnot. And, and John, this year I had, I had no aphids and I'm like, man, this is great. You know, this is, uh, this is the last year at my old house. And what I found is I always grew Roma tomatoes, which tend to in Ohio get ripe right around um, the first of September, give or take. And uh, at that same time, the sunflowers were pretty much at the end of their life cycle. They were getting droopy. They were falling over. They were dying. So I noticed the one day I was walking in the garden. I'm, I'm smiling. I'm picking all these great tomatoes and peppers and there's no aphids anywhere. And I walked over to the dying sunflowers and they're loaded with aphids. And as I watch, little black carpenter ants are climbing up the sunflowers and they're grabbing the aphids off and they're carrying them away. So it just shows you the synergistic relationship there, you know, in, in what was happening in the garden. I didn't have bare dirt. I had areas for, oh, and then on top of that, which was cool too, is there was, I would find frogs living underneath those, those sunflowers all the time. Cool. You know, little toads. And it just was amazing to see how everything interconnected. Well, the same thing happens in our food plots. We probably don't pay as enough attention to it, but I think that's something that I probably wouldn't have thought of had you not shared some of the things you, you pay attention to. Um, but it is something that's so cool is, is take some time when you have these diverse blends and mixes and stuff and, you know, find, find the, the, the crickets and, and all of this other, you know, not in, of course, like you said, the worms, but find all of this and it's, it's, it's all working together, you know, and you'll see birds and, and everything else, um, you know, coming together. And it's really, really cool. There's so much from an ecology standpoint, there's capillary action and finding out where your water table is. Um, I look at that when I look at properties. Um, I mean, this is like, this is way more involved than I think we tend to make it on, on this podcast. And I listen to other people. I, I think when I look at it, it's intricate, right? It's, it's a, it's an ecology that I want to evolve in a positive way. I am not a naturalist by any means, and I do like natural plants. Some of the plants we're introducing in these food plots are not natural. I have non-natural plants on my landscape or non-native plants on my landscape, but it's thinking a little bit more, you know, in-depthly about some of these topics and having kind of like real-world experience, and I think just the smell, if it's uh, anaerobic, right, it's got that barty smell. Like when you're driving down the road and you feel, you get like a nice misty rain, and it kind of has that fluffy, soily smell across, you know, a, a hay field or something like that. You know, the biology is thriving. And uh, that's a lot different from that, you know, kind of degraded soil um, that has, you know, again, it could be waterlogged, right? So it's got low oxygen levels and plants do, 
don't do really well in those areas. Very rich soils like out in the Midwest, you know, they got layers and layers of grassland that's kind of like degraded. And, uh, you know, we're losing so much soil as a result of the practices that we have. Water infiltration is like so important. If you have a, a property like in the Midwest where you're constantly tilling, you're not thinking about the water cycles and, and how to manage water in the la- landscape. On some of my clients' properties here, we're creating swales and ditches and trying to create that microbiology where there's so much interaction of different plants because of the microbiology. And you get to see plants that kind of proliferate those areas that you wouldn't normally see. And that's really interesting because the health of those plants, the water content makes those plants more attractive to deer. You know, this is getting like, I think a little bit too in depth, but like when you're paying attention to some of those aspects, it's it's really fun and, and really enjoyable. And one point you brought up earlier, those healthy tomatoes have a tendency not to attract um, a bad tomato typically attracts insects, aphids, eat it, right? Because it's degrading. A healthy plant repels those insects. So when I'm looking at the landscape and like I want to inoculate plants, add bacterium to plants, I'm looking at the healthiest, baddiest plants. And what I do is I look at the sheen on the plant. If you've ever seen like a cow and a cow has a nice sheen on it, you know that's a healthy cow. Same thing with plants. You're looking at the plant, you're looking at the leaf, right? That leaf is like a solar panel. The fatty acids that are on that leaf, there's microbes on that leaf. And the stomatas open up, they produce water, right? That helps the whole water cycling process. We can change the world by just focusing on having healthy plants in the landscape. And so looking at the plant and that sheen, I can determine just looking at it, right? The volume, right? There's another, there's all these considerations that are just like, just have to look. Right? You don't have to be all sciencey about it. You know, that plant looks really healthy. That plant looks really bad. Right? It's the rut in the litter. Well, that's a bad plant. Pull it out, put a new one in. Um, it could be a factor of the plant, could be a factor of the soil, the type of seed that you have. Whatever the case may be, you need to start to think a little bit more depthly in the landscape. We're not botanists. I'm definitely not one, but I'm starting to think a little bit more about what this does for me. I'll have a podcast talking about key plants, their benefit on the landscape. Um, I've got a bunch of podcasts that I want to do, but I want to get all these other guests on and kind of talk through this. Yeah, we're going to be on again. I think you and I are going to talk more about like seed selection, your specific two-in-one punch, right? I like your idea. This is the stuff that I've been doing for a long time. You're doing it in your own form. So I'm, I'm learning from you and how you approach these things. But I think it's cool because, you know, your stock, anybody can build your seed blend, right? Um, it, it just takes a little bit more time to do that. But giving them the tools, right? Giving them the, the principles behind this is critical. And we don't want to deal with monocultures. We want polycultures. We want diversity. We've just, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of clover. But there's a way to do clover within these, these polycultures that's productive and valuable. You can do it in strips. You can do it in small spots. And you can rotate. And, um, you know, typically a legume that lasts at that period of time. In, in springtime, I go in and I broadcast way more triticale than I should in April. You know, like 100 pounds an acre. Just so it takes and it outcompetes or it competes with, you know, that kind of spring and furrow plants. Or in this case, we're going to talk about like clover as an example. And it's consuming some of that nitrogen. So I'm not completely degrading the soils. I don't want monocultures across the landscape. So it's being a little bit more tuned. Let's think about adding bees onto the landscape, even if they're not native, European bees, Italian bees, whatever type of bees you want, 
adding bees in the landscape, making it more involved and integrated. And then having kind of these fungal zones, areas where there's, you know, dedicated tree rows and splitting these food plots into sections. So there's a lot of strategy that kind of goes into the development of what a food plot should look like and how it should lay out and how to add you know, more fungal areas, areas that are less dominated by bacteria because they're not plowed or tilled and integrating that into the design as well. So this, this is like, again, this is next level stuff, but this is what the point of this podcast is. This is what I'm working with my clients on. And I, I don't think anybody's uh, an elitist when it comes to this, this type of area, because there's so much to learn. And like, I mean, as a, a food plotter, right, me, a food plotter, you know, I'm listening to people that, that know so much more about just you know, the intricacies of soil and how plants work and they're taking measurements and measuring, you know, biomass and productivity and yield. And sometimes I just want to feel and touch it. And I don't want to have to do calculations and analyze things to the nth degree. So I went on a rant, Al, but that's the way I look at things. And, and that's kind of how I approach, you know, th- these, these client, uh, you know, things that, that I'm working on on a constant basis. But I think there's a ton of good advice in this podcast and uh, I've listened to a few about soil and I, I like ours, you know, I think this is good. This is like a soil health 101 to 401. So I think we gave people a lot of information here. Anything that you want to add or, you know, you know, John, the only thing I'll add is, well, first off, thank you for having me on. I look forward to the next chat is Mm -hmm. I think there's, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, there are people literally who study just nitrogen. You know, I mean, the, 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 it, it, that might be a slight exaggeration, but there are so many brilliant people out there. Um, if, if something, you know, if you question something, questioning things are, is good. You know, if you question something, you want to learn more and you can't find it from, um, you know, YouTube, reach out to a ward lab or, or any of the other great labs that are out there. Talk to a PhD. You know, the, in my experiences, they've been, phenomenally helpful you know it's it's okay to question things and the other thing I'd, I'd say is you know we all want to follow the the six soil health principles and and you know no till and, and no disturbance and and no fertilizers and all this that's, that's all great but at the same time any i always like to say any step towards soil conservation is a step in the right direction and sometimes we just have to get started whether it's with my mixes or you want to try to make your own or you want to combine a few or whatever you're doing if you're taking that step towards soil conservation, you're going to like it. Your pocketbook's probably going to like it because you're not going to be spending as much in time. Um, and your deer and wildlife are certainly going to like it. So um, I would just end with that. You don't need all the big equipment. I mean, that's awesome if you can can get it someday if you're doing enough acreage. But um, you can do a lot with a little. And if you're taking that step in the right direction and you're still tilling a little bit or something like that, just maybe don't till it six inches deep, maybe till an inch, you know, um, that's okay. We, you know, we'll, we'll keep working on it. We'll keep getting more diverse, you know, and um, just take that step in the right direction. And uh, that's a step in the darn right direction. Yeah. And I would also say, try to minimize herbicides. I gave the example of how I do it earlier. You know, there's a degradation factor and productivity factor of insects and microbes on the landscape as a result of use of herbicides percentages have been thrown out 10 to 20 percent degraded annually there's a recovery period Um, there's a lot that goes into that we've talked on i think previously we talked about plant back periods you know it just destroys kind of the microbial activity pull you know pull a john teeter example and just go out there and just start being johnny appleseed and throwing stuff all over the place 
that's there's nothing wrong with that strategy. I think actually that's worked well for me over the years. And again, I don't prescribe to having really specific, I guess, seed volumes, etc. I kind of do what feels right. And when I'm cutting timber, I feel right. It's I'm like an artist in the woods. I'm just flowing. And I think a lot of people, when you get to the point of, I don't want to say mastery, because I'm certainly not there mastering anything. But when you get to the point of feeling good about something, and it just flows through your body, and you cut timber, and you can just make decisions, and you, you're rolling, you'll be amazed. And I, I, would, I would suggest anybody, and anybody, if you're not a client of mine, you are a client, it doesn't matter. Go out there and make some mistakes, because you're going to learn from it. And that's how I started doing this, you know, I guess, at this point, 18 years ago. 18 years ago when I was a kid, I just kept making mistakes. And I'm making mistakes every day right now. And uh, that gives me that artistic ability because I get in flow. And if I'm creating a food plot, if I'm cutting timber, if I'm thinking about things, I'm in flow. And I don't know everything about everything. But what I, what I do know is that I'm learning every day. And that's really important. So I want to end on that, Al. Um, we'll have you on again. You're going to break down some more seeds and what to plant in soil types. We'll talk about soil texture and tilt, and we'll get into some more details. And I didn't know soil could be so cool, but it's cool for me. So, Thanks again, John. It was my pleasure. I appreciate it. All right, brother. Talk soon. See ya. Yep. Take care. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.